Order members, the sitting is resumed. It is now time for questions to the Minister for Communities and I call Trevor Clark. Uh, question number one. Yeah, thanks very much for the question. And obviously, I'm aware that South Antrim constituency does have a need for suitable accommodation for those over 55 years of age and over. The housing executive does not hold a waiting list uh, for over 55s, and the elderly cohort is normally measured by those aged 60 and over. Housing need is met through the relet of existing social housing and through the contribution of the new build uh, homes onto the social housing development programme. And in the last financial year, uh, 42 properties suitable for elderly tenants were allocated within the South Antrim constituency. Last year, 11 homes were completed within the constituency that would meet the needs of elderly residents. And currently, there are 28 homes under construction that meet the needs of elderly residents within the South Antrim constituency. Again, recently, I approved the new three-year social housing development plan from 2021 up until 2024, and that contains a uh, further 45 social homes that will meet the needs of elderly residents in that area. And again, staff within the place shape and team in the housing executive continue to work with registered housing associations to highlight uh, the gaps in supply and identify opportunities to address those needs going forward. I call Trevor Clark for supplementary. Um, can I thank the Minister for an answer and indeed a very detailed answer in, in that? But will the Minister accept that whilst there is uh, houses being built, that they actually don't necessarily meet the needs? In many occasions, those houses that are designed for elderly or the 55 plus are eventually allocated to others because of the design and the type of housing they are. Elderly populations don't want to live in flats or apartments. They want to live in quality build properties where they've got their own front door and back door, more akin to the earlier schemes which Fold embarked upon. Will the Minister do a piece of work around that in relation to the needs of the elderly? And this is not unique to South Antrim. Indeed, this is right across all of the province where there is a real need for quality housing for elderly population, which in turn frees up some of the housing stock for the general housing needs. Well, obviously, looking at the social housing development programme, looking at the needs uh, test that is done uh, when you get your points in terms of the point system, it obviously takes into account uh, the needs of those who need a home, um, and all of that is assessed. That's obviously fed into the social housing development programme as well, in terms of the standards and what's needed um, over the, the following years. In addition to that, all new build homes are built uh, to lifetime home standards to ensure that people can um, grow and that the house adopts then to their needs going forward as well. And of course, as part of the statement in terms of the huge changes that we need to make in housing, because the system is broken, I've already said that publicly, we're doing the biggest shake-up in housing that we've seen in 50 years from the creation of the housing executive and as part of that uh, work that's going to be done to be presented to the executive before the end of this mandate in terms of implementation um, is the housing supply strategy. So it is looking at those supplies issues, making sure they are meeting the needs going forward and recognising that we do have an ageing population. People are living longer. Uh, people may want to live differently and there's new opportunities even in working through local councils that you'll be aware in the local development plans. Indeed, they're looking at these in the time ahead in terms of the reimagination of their towns and city centres and how potentially people will live um, in the future. 
And as part of that revitalisation agenda, we want to make sure that housing meets those growing needs going forward. So that housing supply strategy is opened at the moment in terms of consultation. And I would ask uh, the member, anybody that you're engaging with, or communities or activists involved in this sector, to make sure they're engaging with that supply strategy consultation. I call Steve Aiken. Thank the Minister for her answers so far. Obviously, one of the questions the Minister would be aware of is that a lot of, sort of social housing, in particular for the over 55s, one of the biggest concerns has been sort of the Northern Ireland Housing Executive keeping the property up to standard. She will be fully aware across South Antrim that we have real concerns about the issues that are ongoing with uh, property that should have been uh, that was being asked to go across to housing associations. And the residents quite rightly didn't want that and wanted to go back to the housing executive. But there seems to be a, a failure of the housing executive to catch up with its responsibilities and maintenance, and particularly the for those most vulnerable and those above 55. So I'm asking the minister what she's doing about making sure the housing executive stand up to its responsibilities. Yeah, well, again, this feeds in that there are huge challenges, um, and particularly for the housing executive and the financial viability as it currently stands. That was pointed out to in the November statement when Carl uh, was in this position, that the housing executive, unless we make changes now, could lose nearly half of its stock because it can't maintain the stock that it has. It doesn't have the finances to do it. We would need over £8 billion overall in terms of looking at that at the time ahead. And that would fundamentally mean the block grant or looking at my department's budget over an eight-year period and just putting it in to rectify on the properties that are there. So there are huge challenges, and that's twinned with the issue of high levels of fuel poverty because of the standards and conditions. So that's why the revitalisation programme into housing, that shake-up is desperately needed because change is needed. And that is around. So the housing executive have engaged in a process. My department, working with them, have set up a programme board in terms of taking forward that work. Obviously, the supply strategy is part of that. Looking at what the housing executive model going forward is to make sure then that it can borrow, because that's one of the restrictions. We have obviously removed the corporation tax issue, and I'm glad that that was in uh, the British Chancellor's statement earlier in the year. And we're obviously looking at the clawback. I have been um, through the budgets also as well in terms of year-end underspends and COVID monies. We've been able to direct extra resources into the housing executive to deal with maintenance issues that they can then put into their reserves and start to deal. And I know that they are going to be coming forward soon at their board meeting with contracts in terms of dealing with that backlog of maintenance issues. But it is a huge problem, and that doesn't get into looking at the green agenda and trying to retrofit properties as we start to go forward. So we need to deal with the fundamentals in terms of that it's not fit for purpose in its current form. I obviously want to keep it as close to its current form as we can, and work is ongoing at the moment. And the timescale for that is that I will present a way forward to the executive before the end of this mandate. The programme board has been established. We're putting contracts remind, remind in place. The two minutes. Sorry to continue that work, um, and then we'll update the assembly when we progress. I call John Blair. Deputy Speaker, thank you, and I thank the Minister for her replies um, in which she has touched on this subject. I'm grateful for that. Could I ask, though, um, if there's further information she can give us in relation to her department's assessment of community plans for, for housing and how finance will be um, allocated to ensure all constituencies have a fair allocation of social housing going forward? Well, social housing, as you'll know, I mean, one of the fundamentals and one of the issues that I would be ensuring that we keep in terms of why the housing executive was formed 
is to ensure that housing is done on the basis of equality, that it is done on the basis of where the need is. And I think fundamentally any public housing needs to be done on that basis going forward. Um, and of course, I mean, there's differences in terms of urban and rural areas, and indeed I understand that and reflect that, that when you look at the list of need, it, it's not a clear picture in terms of understanding the differences in terms of the urban um, and rural context. So I am keen as we continue to go forward, we need to be building more social homes. We need to be upgrading the social homes and the stock that we have, um, because it is recognised that the stock is falling apart and the housing executive don't have the finances um, to deal with it. So obviously as part of the revitalisation, this is a critical area, um, is to make sure that we maintain the existing stock. I want to get the housing executive, for example, building again, and that's part of that revitalisation programme. An increase in, we have had a, a bigger number of social homes this year, and I do think that we can be more ambitious if the budget allows and houses on the basis of where they're needed. I should have advised members earlier that question four has been withdrawn. I now call Keith Buchanan. Question two, please. Thank you. Just I've detailed previously how my department has worked in partnership across central and local government with our arm's length bodies and stakeholders to provide financial and practical support across a range of sectors. My department has put in place a range of measures since March of last year to protect uh, those most vulnerable within our community, to try and put in safeguards, and also to work with organisations um, which they depend upon as a consequence of the unprecedented pandemic that none of us could have foreseen uh, at the start of last year. We have and continue to give practical and financial assistance, and by that end of the financial year, my department has provided more than $314 million in financial support and assistance, which I have previously spoke about um, in this chamber to a range of schemes. There has also and continues to be a significant demand on our services and ongoing assistance. And I believe that a range of measures which I put in place to mitigate the social and economic and wellbeing effects of the pandemic upon our communities has provided a much needed safety net and paved the way on the journey towards our recovery from the pandemic. I call Keith Buchanan. Thank you, Minister. Thank you for your answer so far. Minister, what learning has your department taken uh, from this? And have you plans on the shelf for future support if, and hopefully it's not needed, but if the need arises? Yeah, well, obviously there's ongoing learning. We're still in the midst of responding to the pandemic. Um, and obviously we're still, I mean, the first part last year, members will remember in here that there were ongoing emergency meetings uh, called and making sure that, firstly, we could pay social security payments, starting down some services to ensure that that was prioritised, particularly when we've seen double um, an increase in people coming and needing those benefits as well. We stood up the emergencies leadership group, and that worked with the community and voluntary sector, both at a grassroots level but also at a, a strategic level across the north as well. And we want to continue to keep that group going, and indeed we want to develop it in the time ahead. We are obviously working with the executive, looking at a, a social recovery um, going forward, and that will pick up on lessons learned. Are there things that we can be doing? One of the areas around um, working with the community and voluntary sector to ensure that we're responding with needs. We work very well with local government. 
over this last year and worked very closely in terms of revitalisation schemes, in terms of the food support uh, that we tried to get out quickly. And I think there is a model of good practice, and also in terms of legislation that we did bring through, and I accept it was done through accelerated passage and it was done very quickly, but there were changes made to, for example, discretionary support, where we increased the income threshold. Uh, we removed certain barriers around that as well, and that was done at pace. And indeed, there's learning to be done for that, not just for the department, but indeed this assembly as a whole in terms of how we respond to those situations. I call Gemma and um, I thank the Minister for her answers so far. Minister, can you give an update on the establishment of the Cultural Task Force? Yes, well, obviously I launched the, the Culture, Heritage and Arts uh, Recovery Task Force um, just over a month ago. Uh, Rotha Johnson is the chair of that task force, and that's made up of a number of representatives from all of those sectors. Uh, right across the north. I wanted to make sure that there was, um, I suppose, an urban and rural balance in all of that in terms of the organisations that were represented. They started work right away in terms of the task force, looking at the needs of those sectors going forward. I was glad, obviously, also in the budget um, going forward and the COVID monies that I was allocated the amount that I requested um, in terms of supporting this work in the time ahead. And obviously, we're working with the task force to design ongoing supports for the sectors that have still been impacted. I mean, you will know from the music industry, particularly, and from freelancers, which is an issue that has always come up, that they're still being impacted now because of the restrictions. So we're working with them to look at what immediate supports we can give. But in terms of looking at recovery, what can we do? And they're coming up with recommendations and suggestions as well. And I must add, freelancers have also been given a place on that task force to ensure that we're listening to their concerns. I call Mark Durkin. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. I thank the Minister for her answers thus far. Could I ask the Minister for her response to the Audit Office report on the Sports Sustainability Fund and whether she still regards it as having been an appropriate and prudent use of public money? Yeah, well, obviously, um, I welcome the prompt publication of the Audit Office report. I think it was important that this was produced as soon as possible. I think the delivery of all the COVID financial assistance, including the Sports Sustainability Fund, was obviously undertaken in a really fluid uh, situation and under extreme time pressures and time scales in which organisations and elected members were saying um, that there was urgent issues that needed to be addressed. Of course, there are lessons that can be learned from the development and the delivery of COVID funding schemes across the board. And obviously, that's something that's already underway in terms of a review of those. The societal and economic value, obviously, of sport is well documented and understood. And obviously, that was reflected in providing the funding that was needed to 452 uh, individual beneficiaries. I think it was also important to add, obviously, that I do welcome the letter from the Chair and the Communities Committee. After there was a representation on the 2nd of April, where uh, my department officials in Sport NI were there, and obviously understanding the Chair wrote to express confidence in the scheme being administered, and obviously to reiterate the Committee's praise for officials. Um, there are learnings, and of course, and they are being taken on board. I do welcome the Audit Office report. 
and of course I'll be continuing to engage on these issues in the time ahead. Moving on, I call Sinead Ennis. Question three, Liddell. So just really, members will be aware that the Licensing and Registration of Clubs Amendment Bill um, passed further consideration stage yesterday. The bill has taken a long time to get to where it is um, today, and obviously I am happy with the progress that's been made through the Assembly over the last seven months, and particularly the work that's been done by the Communities Committee in scrutinising the legislation and working with me with amendments and obviously with other members in this chamber um, over the last uh, few weeks in terms of making the bill a better bill in the time ahead. Obviously, the next and final stage, um, which people will be glad to hear, is scheduled for the 29th of June, so next week. And having the final stage before summer recess means that royal assent will hopefully take place over the summer months. I call Shania Dennis. Jeremy Ogic, uh, thank you to the Minister for that. Um, Modernisation of our liquor laws, I think everybody can agree, was long overdue. And I know the hospitality sector are supportive and appreciative of the Minister's um, attempts to, to get this bill passed as quickly as possible. Can I ask the Minister, can she just reiterate for the House, because she referred to the amendments as well, and I know she's tabled a few, can she re re reiterate for the House what the main benefits um, of this new bill will be for the sector? Yeah, well, just in terms of the hospitality industry um, who have suffered in terms of the pandemic, obviously they will benefit from the removal of restrictions at Easter time. So that will come into effect as of next Easter once it goes through um, the remaining stages. Um, and obviously the industry themselves have said that this uh, will see an estimated cost into the local economy of around £20 million each year. And I know even from my time in Belfast City Council, for example, this is a critical factor um, in terms of visitors into your towns and city centres over that period and taking advantage of that. It would also benefit with a 2am opening for pubs and hotels and an extension of drinking uptime with the creation of new categories of licence for local producers and also cinemas as a result, obviously, of the various iterations uh, going through this chamber. And indeed, the changes will better enable the hospitality sector to cater for changing customer behaviour um, and support them as we go forward in terms of the growth in tourism. I call Matthew Toole. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank the Minister for her answers. Uh, I agree that the bill we're, we're debating is, is a step forward. Um, as, as she knows, I've worked with her department on a specific amendment uh, for an independent review of our licensing system. Would she agree with me um, that it's important that uh, the provisions in this licensing bill, including around local producers, because there are limitations. These are relatively modest uh, reforms in terms of getting our craft beer sector to where it needs to be, that they should participate in that review, make their voices heard, as should existing licensees. But will she also commit to uh, appointing that independent person as quickly as possible and ideally before the end of the mandate? I already answered this, I thought, yesterday, Matthew, um, in terms of that I am given a commitment um, that we will try and have that in place and the procurement will take about six months uh, for that to be done, but there is a commitment to do that. I suppose if we tried to change everything in the existing legislation to get it perfect, we wouldn't have got it through in this mandate and there was an urgency for me. We have waited over 25 years to get to this point. 
um, and I didn't want it to wait any longer because I know the industry, particularly after the pandemic, is screaming out for the change. Our community and people are screaming out for the change. And of course, there will be more changes that will be needed to this legislation longer term. I think the review will help in that, in terms of making sure that it's fit for purpose. And obviously, looking at the introduction of the legislation coming in, hopefully by the autumn, it will start to take effect, that there will be at least some months of learning, at least half a year, um, of learning from the introduction of the legislation once that independent person um, is in place. <coughs> Could we have Daniel McCrossan on their screens, please? Thank you, uh, Mr. Uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you, Minister, for the question so far. Question five, Minister. Thank you. Uh, there are a total of 1,809 applicants on the common waiting list uh, for the allocation of a social home in the West Tyrone area as of the 31st of March this year. Of these, 1,105 were deemed to be in housing stress, while 219 have been allocated over the last year. I'm acutely aware that there is a shortage in the supply of homes which need to be addressed. And to do so, I've set out an ambitious long-term plan to increase the supply of social and affordable housing and reduce the housing stress. However, these plans will take time to come to fruition. And whilst I share the concerns about the numbers waiting for a home, the projected outcome of my plans is about ensuring the supply of social homes can meet the increase in demand going forward. It's also crucial that this protection of the social homes we have ensuring they can be maintained and ultimately that the housing executive is revitalised in a way that we're able to access borrowing to sustain itself and new builds going forward. It is the new build programme that in the shorter term is the key action that we take. And again, one of my priorities is to enhance the investment and the increase in social homes. This has resulted in achieving 2,403 starts last year which is the largest number of units in the last 10 years. And I've also secured an increase in the 2021-22 budget in the programme of 162 million, with a target of starting a minimum of 1,900 homes in this year. I am aware that the housing executive obviously current projected need for West Tyrone is a further 560 new social homes between now and 2025. And indeed, the housing executive is committed to working with housing associations uh, to bring forward new social home proposals uh, in the time ahead. I'm also pleased to advise that 179 new social housing units are currently under construction in the West Tyrone area. I call Daniel McCrossan for supplementary. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for that answer. The figures are stark, and this is an issue that does need to be tackled. Uh, and uh, obviously, I welcome the recent developments in terms of the new build, particularly Adria and Straban, that alleviate pressure on that side of the constituency. That said, Minister, there is a serious issue within social housing stock, not specific just to West Tyrone, in relation to the provision of bungalows. Uh, there is no availability for ground floor accommodation for the elderly or disabled uh, within constituencies such as mine. What are you doing as the Minister for Communities to tackle that very serious issue and to ensure that those in need have access to suitable housing? Well, obviously, thank you for the follow-up. The Social Housing Development Programme, as stated earlier, is based on what the housing need is presented. I know there are percentage targets in terms of the provision of bungalows as well, 
But obviously, we have a focus on building homes for life that people can grow with also. And with new housing bills going forward, um, that's where we want to look at that. I also touched on earlier that we're doing a housing supply strategy as part of that wider revitalisation agenda. Um, and again, we're taking evidence um, around that at the moment. It is opened and a call for evidence there, and I would encourage people to take part in that. We're also working with local councils around land as part of that supply strategy, but also looking at their growth uh, targets within their uh, local development plans in terms of population changes and trends over the next 20, 30 and 40 years. And indeed, all of that will be part of the housing programme and the supply of social homes and looking at other offers as well around intermediate housing and also those who want to do co-ownership as well. So we're taking forward all of this as part of the revitalisation programme and as I said, um, I want to present these firm proposals going forward to the executive before the end of this mandate. But there is a programme board set up between the department and the housing executive. We will be working with the housing executive and staff, we'll be working with trade unions and we'll be working with housing experts as we start to bring forward more firmed up actions in terms of dealing with the housing crisis that we're in. I call Nicola Brogan. I thank the Minister for her answers and I thank her for the update on what she's doing to address social housing witness in West Tyrone. Can I also ask the Minister for an update on how she plans to revitalise the housing executive, please? Yeah, well, obviously, as was pointed out earlier um, in Carl's statement when she was in this position in November last year, obviously reflected on the need for the revitalisation. As I said, we have a, de a decay in housing stock, which members will be acutely aware of. Um, that's obviously reflected in uh, the fuel poverty targets um, as well. And there's a huge need in terms of dealing with the financial uh, strains that the housing executive have. So as part of the revitalisation work, this is going to be a critical part of it. Another area for me is, um, as I say, as part of that financial was dealing with the issue of corporation tax, which we have now removed. And that means over the last seven years, almost £50 million that should have been going into homes were being paid to the British Treasury. Thankfully, that has come to an end. We're trying to claw that money back to put back into housing. But going forward, we will have that saving then, and that can go part of not just maintaining the stock that the, uh, the housing executive have, but hopefully in the future being invested into homes when they have the ability uh, to build again as well. So we have to remove the restriction for the housing executive that they can't borrow at the moment. That's one of the biggest hurdles that they have. And as part of the revitalisation agenda, we want to make sure that they can borrow, that we deal uh, with the stock issue, um, and that we also get them on a firm financial and sustainable footing. Nicole Robbie Butler. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Thank the Minister for a detailed answer with regard to the housing stress in West Tyrone. The uh, Minister will be aware that Lagan Valley is probably one of the most popular places to live and bring up a family. How does Lagan Valley compare with regard to West Tyrone with regard to housing stress and need? I don't have the exact figures on Lagan Valley, so I'm not going to tell you um, that I do, but we can get those sent to you as well. But obviously we know there's a crisis. There's over 42,000 people um, on the waiting list. We know that that's gone up. We know that that's been exacerbated as a result of the pandemic um, as well. And therefore, we need radical change in terms of how we do housing. Um, I do believe that that was set out in the November statement, albeit that takes time to make those huge changes. Um, it doesn't come overnight. The programme board is in place. 
I want to make sure that we're delivering on the basis of need, but also looking at potentially where the growth may be in the future. So working with local government and local councils around their development plans is going to be crucial as well. Obviously, building more homes, land and infrastructure becomes a major issue. And as part of the housing supply strategy that I've spoke about, we'll start to look at those issues and has already thrown up challenges that are there. And obviously, I'll want to be working with uh, the infrastructure minister, who I know is interested in these issues as well, in terms of overcoming those challenges that we have. But in terms of the specific um, numbers in your area, I'll follow that up in a letter to you. Moving on, I call Philip McGuigan. Thank you, Philip, and hope you're keeping well after your hospital. Um, again, just I'm pleased to inform the member that the expert panel, um, in terms of discretionary support, has already commenced work of the review of discretionary support, and obviously that's made up of academics, those within the independent advice sector. Um, both at a strategic level but also at a grassroots level as well. I am glad that all panel members that were approached accepted the invitation to be part of this important work. The panel held their first virtual meeting on the 14th of June, um, which was only one week after I announced their appointment. And again, I am committed to ensuring uh, that we provide the best possible for support um, for people who are in financial crisis and that this review will be an important opportunity to critically examine what works and what can be done better. And obviously, I am looking forward to receiving the expert panel recommendations later in the year. And obviously, subsequent to that, legislation will need to be changed in terms of how discretionary support will work, and we will start the process of doing that as well. I call Philip McGuigan for a quick supplement. Graham Elgut, uh, I thank the, the Minister for her answer, and obviously I thank her also for her continued commitment and determination to assist those on, on low incomes in society, as clearly demonstrated by establishing the discretionary support uh, panel. Can I also ask her uh, if she could provide an update on her plans to extend the, the benefit uh, mitigation package in light of the budget uh, settlement? Yes, in terms of the budget, the money is there. In terms of extended mitigations, obviously the current mitigations are continuing to be paid under the auspices of the Budget Act. But indeed, the paper that I have in with the executive is not only just about extending those, but closing the loopholes around the benefit cap and the bedroom tax for those who have fallen through it. Um, I was at committee last week, so the money is there to also facilitate and to fund the closing of those loopholes um, as well. So there's no additional finances that will be required. And again, I just hope that that can progress through the executive as soon as possible. I have the legislation in place and I'm ready to go. I know the committee is ready to go once they receive the information to make sure that we bring in these protections without further delay. And that ends our period of listed questions to the Minister. Uh, and we now move on for 15 minutes of topical questions. Question number one has been withdrawn. I call Robin Newton. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. The Minister will know that procrastination is a thief of time. Can I ask the Minister when she will make a decision on the economic appraisal that has been on her desk for months regarding the future of the Knocknagoni Avenue shops and masonettes? Well, it hasn't been on my desk for months. Um, there was work that was ongoing. There's been engagement with officials and with the housing executive. 
and once additional information comes in front of me, a decision will then be taken without further delay. I call Rob Newton for supplementary. Uh, thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. I thank the Minister for that answer, but that is not indeed what has been said to me in written answers. Can I, Minister, this is a matter that has been going on for at least 10 years. And over the period of that time, minimal uh, response maintenance has been taking place to the homes that, that are there. Can I ask the Minister what would her intention be in terms of compensation, legal fees, alternative accommodation, and indeed to get the folk that are living in dreadful conditions out into more suitable accommodation? Obviously, all of that would be considered as part of the business case process and the engagement um, that the Housing Executive has had in terms of putting the submission to the Department. They are issues that I am taking seriously, and there have been engagements around these issues because moving people, and I know you were on the radio a few weeks ago looking at other flats um, as well across East Belfast, and I know Granny Long was on the radio that morning as well in terms of Good Morning Ulster. Um, and obviously, so these issues are important. I've met Andy Allen recently as well on the similar issues in terms of residents that would have to leave. I suppose it feeds back into the other issue in terms of housing um, and the existing stock, that it's not fit for purpose, um, that it is falling down in some circumstances, and there is a need um, that we need to change that. In some cases, that will mean knocking down and then looking at replenishing uh, stock as well. So when I fully am appraised of the business case and when the supplementary questions that I have asked are answered and that information comes back, then I will be considering all of that. I'm not going to give an answer now until all of that's considered because it would be disingenuous of me to do it. But once that's done, um, I will come back and those members that have written to me on this issue, I will communicate with them as soon as that's done. Could we have Sinead Bradley onto our screens? And I call Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does the Minister agree that it seems perverse that she refused to introduce a COVID payment to families who had a total income of over £20,000 and yet has awarded hundreds of thousands of pounds to organisations and clubs with huge reserves, even underwriting profits? And how does that sit with her mantra of meeting objective need? Well, firstly, the income in terms of the discretionary support payments, I moved very quickly last year. Members will know to actually increase the income threshold. I had to move that through this chamber as well. Um, and so that was done where I immediately recognised that enough families uh, weren't being covered in terms of who were presenting with crisis as a result of the pandemic. And I moved urgently then to increase the income threshold. So I took that through this chamber and indeed that was endorsed right across the chamber that that was the right thing to do. In terms of the other funding, um, I mean, as I said, I've already mentioned this, that I welcome the publication of the report by the Audit Office. Uh, that scheme itself was designed with the sector. Um, I do believe that the intent of how that was set out was met within that. There are obviously lessons learned. Um, but in terms of the implementation, as was uh, proven by the committee when there were representations made to the committee at the time when this was raised previously back in April, um, that the committee actually commended 
uh, the work that was done by my officials and also those within Sport NI in terms of the administration of the scheme. Of course, we will look at the recent report um, and there will be lessons learned going forward uh, and we will be doing that internally within the department. Nicole Sinead Bradley for supplementary. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Minister. Minister, you said you believed the intent was met, um, so I'm somewhat confused. Are you still of the opinion that the intent of the, of the scheme was to underwrite profits, and therefore will you have no intention of looking at uh, options in how to recoup that money and perhaps distribute it to those who are more in need? In terms of money firstly passing over, you can't just lift money from one strand, whether that was sports, culture and arts, and put it in to a completely other part of the uh, department. You don't have the ability to do that. And in terms of looking at discretionary support and others, as you alluded to, firstly, I did have a budget. That budget was utilised. That budget was not under pressure in terms of the, the needs that were met, and indeed over £20 million was paid out to families and individuals of those who were in crisis as part of that discretionary support. But again, like all of these, I've recognised um, that there's a need to make improvements. We were moving at pace, and indeed I've recognised that. I know the Audit Office has also recognised that, that we were moving at pace in terms of how decisions were being taken. So, of course, there's always lessons learned in all of these schemes. I answered the question earlier in terms of lessons learned as a result of the pandemic overall. Um, but I do believe in terms of the administration of the scheme that we kept to the guidance that was laid out. And I know that that was confirmed by the committee at their meeting back in April. I call Colin McGrath. Thank you very much, Mr Deputy Speaker. Uh, could the Minister provide the House with an update on the work that she has done to ban co uh, conversion therapy? Yeah, well, work is ongoing um, at the moment. Obviously, uh, this has also fallen in under the social strategies in terms of the LGBTQI plus strategy. There have been engagements um, with the sector. I've met recently with Rainbow and Here and I, um, who were there on behalf of ban conversion therapy overall. I know the Christian Institute has also communicated with the department as well, and again, I've responded uh, to them. I want to push ahead. We have started initial discussions with the Bills Office to start to looking at the drafting of legislation. But as I said before, there's a piece of work fundamentally that needs to be done to assess how wide scale this issue is. It's also been recognised from uh, the work that's being done um, as part of the LGBTQI plus strategy that when we're doing that, there's the, uh, there's the chance that we can re-traumatise people as we start to discuss these issues. And it's important that we put in mechanisms, working with myself, but also within the health department, to ensure that there are appropriate support services for those that may be re-traumatised as a result um, of this condition. So I want to bring forward legislation as soon as possible. I'm working with the sector um, in terms of doing that. And indeed, I'm meeting with them again uh, within the next couple of weeks before the summer recess um, to make sure, though, that the legislation is robust and fit for purpose, because we have seen in other areas where that legislation has fallen at the first or second hurdle because of that essential work at the start wasn't done. So there's a commitment for me to ban this practice and to try and do that as urgently as possible. I call Colin McGrath for supplementary. Uh, Deputy Speaker, and I, I thank the Minister for her reply. I mean, obviously, within NDNA, there is that need for a sexual orientation strategy, and this will be a key part of that. 
and the meetings are important, but the action and delivery on the ground is what's going to make the difference. And I know that we had uh, discussed this issue uh, a few months ago, uh, and I'm just not so sure that the answers are very different in that period of time. So can I implore the Minister that we get as much action as possible for this so that we can bring equality right across these islands in this matter? Action is important, but it's making sure it's robust. There's no point in me placing a piece of legislation in this chamber that doesn't stand up, that then allows people to still fall through the net. And in the engagement and the co-design process of the LGBTQI plus strategy, these are some of the concerns that are being raised to make sure that it is robust, to make sure that as this debate starts to pick up again, as it was in terms of the uh, members' motion that was brought forward by the Ulster Unionists, that we build in supports to make sure that we're not re-traumatising people, because rightly, as was stated, this has been categorised and seen as torture treatment. People are being re-traumatised. But there is a commitment from me to work with the sector as we move through this, that there is no undue delay, um, indeed, in terms of having a, a clear timetable for that pathway. But they are also clear that they want the legislation to be robust. They just don't want me to come in here and be popular. Um, to say that I've put something in front of the members, that it has to bring in those protections and the equality duties that you rightly talk about. And I'm um, committed to doing that in a co-design and working with the community themselves. I call Pat Cackney. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for your answers so far. Can I ask the Minister uh, for, her, for herself to give me an assessment of the performance of capita in carrying out a PIP assessments? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, PIP has been introduced. There has been two independent uh, reviews that have been done off PIP, and obviously there have been criticisms. I know the most recent independent review um, in terms of how that's being carried out was done by Marie Kavanagh, and indeed nearly all of those recommendations that Marie laid out um, I have agreed to implement in. There are also other changes that are going to be made uh, going forward. I've already given a commitment that I want to try and in-house um, these schemes and assessments as soon as I can. There is a recognition to do that, the issue of medical evidence and working with medical practitioners, that the Department of Health is going to be crucial in that. And indeed, I have written uh, to the Health Minister. There's been engagements with the Health Department to see how quickly we can do that. There are pieces of work that they need to be doing. Um, and also, I'm also doing a piece of work in working with those who are going through PIP and trying to set up a forum that we can start a more proactive engagement and trying to embed a rights-based approach at the heart of social security. I call Pat Cackney for something. Uh, thank you, Minister. And, uh, I'm sure you're like myself. Uh, the figures, the shocking figures of successful appeals for me, especially in Lyland Valley, against PIP assessment decisions. Uh, why have you extended, Minister, Capita's contract without going through the procurement process for another two years? There was an extension in terms of which the Chamber had already knew, um, in terms of because of the impact of the pandemic. Um, last year that there was an extension until July 2023 in terms of the existing contract that is in place. As I have said, my intent is to in-house this as quickly as possible. Um, we are not able to do that right away is the, is the clear answer because we need health. So when we are looking at the model that is being used in Scotland, they are working with local health trusts 
in terms of having that early medical evidence, because I agree, the more we can front load the system, the more that we can get all of the evidence presented to decision makers, means for a quicker decision that hopefully won't end up in appeal. The difficulty is we're not getting that information. It's not coming quick enough. We know the issues that are happening with GP surgeries and that, for example. So there have been proactive discussions with the Department of Health to try and make sure they can do what they need to do at their end, to make sure that we can move to an in-house model. I'm trying to work with them as quickly as possible in doing that. And indeed, we are doing further. I've started to in-house the audit function. That's going to come in-house into the department again from August of this year. We're also trying to increase um, and in-house as many of the assessments um, that don't need further medical evidence. And indeed, we've already started to in-house 25% of those. Um, but again, we do need to go much further. And obviously, working with health is going to be critical over the next period. I call Alan Chambers. Speaker, uh, uh, could I ask the Minister uh, when she intends to bring forward welfare mitigation legislation to the Assembly? Yeah, well, I have the legislation ready, um, as I presented to the committee last Thursday. The regulations are ready as well. I've had the paper in with the executive, and I'm waiting for it to be placed on the agenda to be agreed. Um, and I've already said that I'm ready and willing, whether that was over the summer, it would take a six-week period all in for those regulations around closing the loopholes to be done. That can't be shortened um, in terms of how that has to proceed. But from my end, I have everything ready to go. Once it gets the approval, uh, the SR1 form would be given to the committee. And I know the committee are ready and willing, even if that meant working over the summer, to get this progressed without delay. And that is the end of our period of time allocated for questions to the Minister for Communities. I would ask members to take their ease for a few moments.